Well, we're continuing today in the book of Acts, so if you've got your Bible in front of you, we're on page 1044, and we're going to read chapter 12, down to the bit where Barnabas and Saul are sent off, so down to verse 24. So starting at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where there were many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, he was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered them to be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a mere mortal. Immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Wow. (laughs) Some interesting stuff in there, isn't there? Can we pray again as we come to look at that? 
Lord, I want to pray that you will just open our hearts to your word this morning. Lord, we, we read some passages of the Bible and some of them seem a bit confusing and a bit like, what on earth is this about? And we just pray for your wisdom to come into our hearts that we might see clearly how you would speak to us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Three weeks ago, I got a job offer. You're probably thinking, already? <laughs> it was a genuine job offer. Have you got the PowerPoint? It was, it was from this company, Express Spa. I'll read you the email that came into my inbox. This is not spam. This is a genuine email. Dear Jonathan Brownwell, welcome to Express Spa. I am pleased to extend an offer to you as our leisure centre receptionist in the John F. Kennedy Airport. You will report to Victoria Everett, Area Training Manager. Attached, you will find the normal formal offer letter for your review. Please sign and email back to me. Do you know what had happened? They'd missed the dot out of the email address. So some poor person called Jonathan Bramwell, who lives near John F. Kennedy Airport, was sat waiting for this email to come in of their job offer. And here's me getting this very strange request to be a leisure centre receptionist at JFK Airport. But you know, life is full of things that go wrong, isn't it? Now, I was incredibly noble. I did actually email them back and tell them they got it wrong, put this person out of his misery. But stuff in life goes wrong. Some stuff is easily put right. But sadly, a lot of stuff isn't easily put right, is it? You know, we've been praying this morning for all kinds of people around the world suffering in different ways. The world is fallen. The world is in a mess. You go back to the early chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, and we see that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. There's sin and death and pain and aging and decay and all those other things that we suffer with came into human experience. Paul will tell us in Romans that the whole of creation is groaning because of what has happened to the world, because that rebellion against God. And suffering is part of the tragedy of the human condition. You know, this morning, all of us, without exception, without fail, without any kind of dispute, will experience some kind of suffering. All of us. We can't deny it. We can't get round it. What a lovely, cheery start on a, a sunny October morning. But you know, sometimes I wonder if as Christians, whether we grapple adequately with some of these difficult questions that we actually face. Some of the questions that the scriptures just throw up. You know, suffering happens. Bad things take place. Now, if you're anything like me, when I'm feeling good about life, I don't want to talk about suffering. When I'm feeling in a bad place and suffering is happening... I don't want to talk about suffering either because it just seems to make matters worse. So the danger is, it's one of those topics that gets just sort of shelved and we don't really talk about it. But in this passage before us today, we cannot escape the fact that the early church was suffering at the beginning. <coughs> suffering terribly. If you were here two weeks ago, we were looking at the previous two chapters of Peter's vision of that, that blanket of um, animals coming down out of heaven and how the interpretation came for that dream that it was about Jews and Gentiles um, being able to be saved by the gospel. Chapter 11 ends with a description of how the persecution that happened when Stephen was stoned to death resulted in the church being spread across a big area, and lots of people were now becoming Christians. This chapter starts with another wave of persecution, this time at the hands of King Herod. 
You're probably thinking King Herod. You know, we've, we've come across this bloke before. He's, um, he's not actually the same one as in the nativity stories. That was the, the granddad of this King Herod. The King Herod here is King Herod Agrippa I. Wasn't a particularly nice bloke, and he went round persecuting the church. And look what happens here. James, the son of Zebedee, one of the apostles, is killed. And then Peter is arrested. And Peter is put in prison, and the, the sort of the plan is that after Passover comes, he will go the same way as James. He will be executed. Because Herod has seen it makes the Jews happy. Herod was only a half-Jew. He wanted to make sure the Jewish people were kept on side. So if he did things that they liked, he'd do more of it. Now, I think we need a bit more background to understand how the early church manages to respond to this suffering and persecution. Because this is the most awful time for them as a church. The end of chapter 12, this end of the chapter we're looking at today, um, most historians will tell us that we're up to about AD 44. So we're about 10 to 15 years after the events of the resurrection. Not a big time span. If you're over the age of 35 this morning, 10 to 15 years is just a flash like that, isn't it? I think most of us over that age will notice. If you're a bit younger, you'll experience that when you sadly get older. But it's one of those things, if, if you sort of if you think back, 10 to 15 years, you can clearly remember some of those things that have taken place. And it's not a long time since these people had witnessed the coming of the Spirit. Since there were those people who'd actually met the risen Jesus. There were those people who'd been there at the day of Pentecost when Peter had preached. And he said, what you're seeing now is what the prophet Joel said would come about. That the Spirit will fall on the whole of humanity that your young men, your young women will dream dreams and prophesy. These are the last days. This was a group living with that very real hope in their midst. They were focused on earthly ministry, but they were looking forward to eternity with Jesus. And then in this chapter, persecution breaks in again. What's happened? Well, you've got a death of a leader, a friend, an apostle. The imprisonment of the most significant leader in the early church to this point, Peter, the one who Luke has spent an awful lot of time telling us about. You know, verse 5a, if you read the first part of verse 5, it's not a good place to be for the church, and I think that is an understatement. You imagine how a church would suffer if one of your leaders has been killed and another one has been put in prison. But it asks the question of me, and I think it does of all of us, you know, how do we respond when verse 5a situations break into our life? When suddenly unwanted, unlooked-for suffering comes and invades our personal life? Because none of us had a suffering exemption card, do we? None of us has that exemption from the suffering that we will face from time to time. But there's a word in the middle of verse 5, and it's a three-letter word, and it links the next part in, and it just simply says, but, but the church was earnestly praying. You see, the church hadn't lost hope in Jesus. What suffering was to do here was not drive them away from their Lord, but drive them towards him. And you see, there's a choice, I think, for each of us. When suffering invades our lives, what do we do? Do we say, I'm turning my back on Jesus, or actually I'm going to turn to him? and I'm going to walk this with him. So why did they manage to do this? Why did they manage to get to a point where they would pray? Well, there's two things I want to suggest. They're not actually in this passage, but they're sort of from the bigger context of the book of Acts. 
And the first thing is this. They were looking at life with an eternal perspective. They knew where they were heading. I don't know if you've ever been on a very long journey and you actually find that that journey is easier because you know where you're going. Um, it was a few years ago. We, we'd moved down to Bristol and Timothy was only a little baby and we were going on holiday in North Wales and I had this great idea of deciding to drive up the Wye Valley and then drive up um, the, sort of the, the Welsh marches right the way through up into North Wales. Now, if we'd gone on the motorway, that journey would have taken about three hours. Nine hours later... We were chugging up these Welsh country roads, thinking, what on earth have we done? We see Every tractor in Wales was out that day. And we were just going at a snail's pace. But because we knew where we were going, the actual the journey, we could just about cope with, even with Timothy screaming in the back of the car for a great deal of it. But the early church had this eternal perspective. They knew they were living in the last days. They knew that Jesus would return. They knew that the Spirit had been poured out. They knew that in Christ, that God hadn't just brought a treatment for the human condition, but that he'd brought the cure. The sin and death were dealt with at the cross. And that resurrection, they were defeated. That the powers of darkness were defeated. And there is a tangible sense as you go through the book of Acts, that actually these are exciting times to live in. Because God's rule and God's reign has broken out in Christ, and when he returns, it will be fulfilled. But you know, it's not only in the book of Acts in the New Testament that we find this kind of excitement. It's right the way through the epistles. It's right the way through the writings of John. Listen to this from Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You know, that is the Jesus we're serving this morning. The Jesus who says, one day... When my kingdom is complete, all this suffering that you're facing now will be done away with. There'll be no more of it. Look forward to that hope. Or look at Romans 8, verse 18. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you live with that sense of eternal hope today? That sense of what Jesus has done and where we're heading? There's some great verses in 2 Timothy. And it says, um, 2 Timothy 11 and 12, it says, Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, even when the suffering comes, if we turn to Jesus and endure, we will reign with him. We follow Jesus who pours his love into our hearts, the good shepherd, the one who will lead us, even through death itself, into his presence. That's the kind of perspective the early church had. But the second thing they had was that they had saw that God intervened and that they had witnessed answers to prayer. Question for you. How many prayers are answered in the book of Acts? Anyone want to give me an answer? All of them? Now you're thinking, I know. I have no idea. I've not even looked this one up. (laughs) But it's a challenge for somebody who wants an interesting job this week. Read the book of Acts See how many prayers are answered, and next week you can come and tell us, okay? But I would imagine, from my reading of the book of Acts, there are loads of prayers that the early church see answered. You know, when we've seen God answer prayers in the past, we have a confidence that he will do stuff in the future. And it's almost like our, sort of, our faith grows, our faith develops, and we get that kind, of, that kind of sense that God will move. But you know, if we want to see God answer prayer, what do we have to do? 
Very simple. You can give me the answer. We have to pray, don't we? And this is what we find the church here doing. Verse 5. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. Suffering didn't lead them away from Jesus, but it led them to him. It led them into the arms of their Lord. This is one of those crossroad points in the life of the early church. I don't know if you can just sort of imagine what it would be like to be in this prayer meeting. When there is persecution all around you, when somebody is being killed, perhaps somebody who is a friend, there is one of your other leaders in prison, what would that prayer meeting have like, been like? Well, it would have been a place of crossroads, wouldn't it? I think persecution can often bring us to that place of crossroads in our faith. You know, in this country, we're very fortunate at the moment, we don't experience persecution on a significant scale. But if you were talking to Christians from Syria or Iraq or North Korea at the moment, there are points in their faith where they have got to decide, am I following Jesus or am I leaving him behind? Am I following Jesus through this suffering or am I leaving him behind? And so they pray earnestly. This is the prayer for survival. This is prayer that really, really matters. James is dead. Peter is next. What are they praying? Luke doesn't tell us. You know, if we meet Luke in eternity, there's lots of questions I want to ask him. What was this prayer meeting like? What was going on in this prayer meeting? Were they praying for Peter to be released? Well, we'll come to that in a moment. Probably not, by the way, they react when he is. Were they praying that he would have the strength to stand up like Stephen did when he was stoned to death? Or were they simply there praying that Jesus would return before the morning so that none of this had to happen? Well, we just do not know. We don't know what was happening. But we do know Peter was in prison. He's chained to two soldiers. He's there. He's guarded with all these different guards round about him. And what is he doing? Well, he's sleeping. I don't know if you're like me, but if I've got a busy day the following day or I'm going on holiday or I'm travelling somewhere, I find it difficult to sleep because my mind is whirring with all the different things I've got to do. Here is Peter facing a trial, probable execution, chained to two people. I can't not imagine it would be very comfortable. Probably sat on the stone floor, fast asleep. Now, there's a bit of humour in this passage. Um, we lose it in our NIV translation, but the, the original bit here, if you, if you use the original translation of these words, basically says the angel appeared and kicked him in the ribs. He was so fast asleep that this angel had to come and give him a good boot to wake him up. I don't know what your image is of angels, whether you're sort of on the Christmas card page, you know, with angels with wings and sort of fluffy halos and those kind of things. This is not that kind of angelic visitation. This is an angel barging into human experience saying, get up, God has something to do in your life. And so what happens? Well, the bright light appears, the presence of God. Chains fall off Peter's wrists. Peter isn't sure whether this is real or whether this is a vision. Now, we sing these words, don't we? You know that hymn, and can it be? The dungeon filled with light, my chains fell off. You know, Wesley wants us to think this is about sin. This isn't about sin here. This is actually about physical chains. This is about God releasing us. Fine to sing that hymn. Great hymn, by the way. But this is not about sin at this point. This is about the physical chains and God actually releasing somebody from a human prison. Verse 10. He comes to the iron gate leading to the city. It opens... He walks down it, and then the angel leaves. And it's at this point that Peter realizes that God has moved. At this point, the rest of it, he wasn't quite sure what was going on. 
But now he's in the middle of a dark city in the middle of night. He realized that this is God. So what does he do? Well, he goes out and he goes to give testimony, if you like, to the group of people who've been praying. And we get a bit more humor. I think you noticed it probably as I was reading the passage. He goes to the house. This servant girl comes to the door and she hears it's Peter's voice. So what does she do? She doesn't open the door, does she? She goes back in again and starts telling people, Peter's at the door. It's like, why haven't you let him in? Peter's at the door. But the people inside are skeptical. You're out of your mind. That's why I don't think they were praying that he'd be released. You're out of your mind. This cannot be Peter. But she keeps going on and on at them. It's Peter. It's Peter. Well, they say, well, it must be his angel. It's a funny verse, isn't it? It must be his angel. Apparently, people at this time believed that everybody had a guardian angel that looked like them and sounded like them. It'd be awful if you met them, wouldn't it? Um, But that's what people believed. You can go away this afternoon and decide whether that is a biblical viewpoint. We're not getting into that, that now. But Peter keeps knocking on the door. You know, I believe in a God who answers prayer. I hope you believe in a God that will barge into our human experience and answer our prayers. A God who is merciful and gracious and loves us and who wants to to impact our lives today. The way that God has ordained the world is that he wants us to pray to him. He wants us to partner with him in seeing his kingdom come and his power released. You know, we are not puppets. God will not make us pray. God will not demand our prayers. But he wants us to pray. We can choose to pray. We can choose to ask God to intervene. Or we can keep very quiet and not ask for it. You know, prayer is not a duty. It's a privilege. It's an honor to be able to come into the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and bring our requests to him. I believe prayer is something that we should enjoy doing something that we should look forward to. You know, coming to our Heavenly Father and speaking to Him and having relationship with Him because of what Jesus is doing. There's a prayer meeting that have prayed. They were expectant that God would work, but they're not expectant enough. And so they're shocked when Peter arrives at the door. But you know, Jesus tells us to be bold prayers. He tells us to ask for things because God longs to answer prayer. I think I saw something on Facebook this week. I can't credit this as my own, but it said, the prob- one of the biggest problems in the church today is not unanswered prayer, but it's unasked for prayer. Yeah, that we just simply do not come to the Lord and ask him for things. But listen to what Jesus said. This is from Luke chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. We can read a passage like that, and we can say, well, what about God's will? How do we know whether we're praying in God's will? How do we know what God's will is? We can really stress ourselves out about that. And I think, yeah, obviously we do have to do that, but we can be quite sensible as well. You know, if you're praying for stuff today that you know is sinful and you know is wrong, God will not answer those kind of prayers. God will not answer prayers that are contrary to his character and nature. If you're praying prayers that are really sort of self-centered and self-obsessed, you know, be very careful with those prayers. But if we're praying into situations and we're asking the Lord to do his will, then you know what? I think God loves it when we pray in that kind of way. God may not answer how we want, 
Prayer is a mystery. You know, sometimes we can pray and we think, Lord, where's the answer to this? We have to leave that in God's hands. We haven't got answers sometimes that we can give there. But what happened here? The church prayed and they saw prayers answered. If we're suffering, does it lead us to pray to the Lord? Does it lead us to Christ or does it leave us away? When we're suffering, do we find ourselves poring over what we think God might be saying in a situation? Or do we just actually get on our knees and say, Lord, I need you. You have promised that you will be with me. You promised that you will walk this with me. You promised that whatever the outcome, that you will be there. You know, God isn't interested in our formulaic prayers. He's interested in our hearts. God isn't interested in our clever words. He's just interested in our desire to surrender. What happens in this account? The church prays, and God massively exceeds their expectations. God massively exceeds what he thinks they would do. So look what happens next. God has answered a prayer, big time, but Peter realizes that the authorities are going to be looking for him. Verse 17, it says he left for another place. Another of Luke's slightly ambiguous comments. We don't know where he went, don't know what he did, but he's gone. He's cleared off. That is a really humanly sensible thing to do. Herod's soldiers were after him. We find that out later in the passage. Best thing Peter can do is to get out of the situation. He doesn't want the church to be having to be praying exactly the same thing 24 hours later. So he removes himself from the situation. You know, sometimes when God answers prayers in our life, and I hope that many of us can testify that God has answered, it doesn't mean that we just abdicate our brains and abdicate all sense of you know, responsibility for our own lives. A few years ago, um, my dad was diagnosed with having really quite seriously, dangerously high cholesterol. And I remember, it's quite a long time ago, so I can't remember the exact details, but I remember that we prayed for him. And he went back to the doctors uh, a few weeks later, and his cholesterol had come down. And it was down into sort of normal, safe levels, and it has been ever since. So what do you do? You give thanks to God, don't you? Thank you, Lord, for answering prayer. But I wouldn't have encouraged him to go out and celebrate with a triple sausage, double bacon, black pudding, and fried egg sandwich, followed by a piece of chocolate cake. You know, it just wouldn't make any sense, would it? We give thanks to God, but we keep our brains plugged in as well. Where's your prayer life today? Are you running to Jesus? Or at the moment, are you running away from him? It doesn't mean abdicating your brain. You still have to think. We still have to look at life as human beings. But are you seeking the Lord's will? Are you expectant that actually God may break into your life and give us a foretaste of eternity in the here and now. You know, God longs for us to pray. How many prayers go unanswered because they go unasked? And so we see the end of this passage. It's onwards and outwards for the gospel message. You know, when God does answer prayers in our life, it can be a real catalyst for mission because it increases our faith and it reminds us that Jesus is real and it makes us want to share Jesus with other people. A few years ago, um, I was experiencing, for a period of about two weeks, the most awful headache I've ever had, and it felt like somebody put my head in a vice and was merrily turning the vice. I don't know I can describe it. It just went on and on and on and on. I'd been to the doctors, and they weren't overly concerned, but they gave me some really strong painkillers, which did absolutely nothing. I was sort of soldiering on as only a man can do, working, and 
trying not to make a big issue of this headache. Um, but it was. It was beginning to really get me down. And one of the, the leaders of the church we were in was coming around for a meeting one evening. I just simply said to him, will you pray with me? Because he, he was very happy to pray with people who, who were ill in various ways. And he just simply prayed for me and went. That was it. There was, there was nothing dramatic or anything like that. Within half an hour, that headache had gone completely. Now, I believe that was God answering a prayer. I cannot give you an answer why God answered that prayer and not other prayers for more serious health conditions that I've had. I cannot give you that answer. But what I know is that sometimes when we pray, God, in his grace and mercy, exceeds our expectations, and we must run to him. We must run to him in prayer. And you know what? That increased my faith. It increased my passion for Jesus. It made me want to talk more about Jesus because I'd seen Jesus move in my life. So the church is paid, is prayed, sorry. Peter is set free. Peter moves on. And then what does Luke do? Well, he just tells us a bit at the end of the story, really. He wants us to know what's happened to Herod. Luke tells us about Herod the persecutor and the end of his life. Look at verse 22. The crowd to which Herod is speaking say that this is the voice of a god. Strange thing to say. I wonder whether at the party conferences people were saying that to David Cameron or Jeremy Corbyn or people. I'm not sure. But they were saying this man, this leader of ours, is like a god. Did Herod, did he want to be a messiah? Did he want to be like Caesar in Rome who people worshipped? Whatever the reason, he didn't point glory back to God and say, no, this is nonsense. Worship God alone. And look what happens. He died a horrid death. He's eaten by worms. Thankfully, Luke is brief here. There are times when we want Luke to give us a bit more information. This is not one of them. But there is more. If you want to know more, you can read the Jewish historian Josephus. He gives a load of detail on this story. So you can actually find out more about it. But there's a great verse, verse 24. And this is why I think we need to go to this verse in the passage. But the word of God continued to spread. In spite of all the persecution, in spite of all the suffering, because the church had run to Jesus and not away from him, because the church had been a group of people who prayed and expected that God would move, the gospel keeps going out there. And it leads to the word of God flourishing and spreading and more people being saved. I don't know how you found this chapter. I found this chapter quite an uneasy one. There are loads of questions that I've still got hanging around in my brain that we haven't even touched this morning as to what's going on here. But what I do see is that it's a a chapter with which God's sovereignty is played out. You know, if today you are a disciple of Jesus, if you're suffering, now that might be through some pain of normal life, it might even be persecution, I just want to ask you, you know, do you have an eternal perspective on your life? Do you look forward to what Jesus will do in eternity? And when suffering breaks in, are you running to him or are you running away from him? Are you off in the other direction or are you running into the arms of the Savior? Now, I hope this chapter is one that encourages us to keep going. I hope it's one that lifts our eyes to Jesus and says, when we're in those times, Lord, will you be with me? You've promised to be faithful. You have promised to walk with me. But there's a massive encouragement that I found from it. You know, if you're in a verse 5a situation today, if you cannot see the end of the suffering that you're in, 
there is encouragement here. Because you know what? God is already in verse 24. God is already there. You don't need to be afraid. God will walk with you. God is faithful. And he encourages us to be faithful too. So let's run to Jesus. Let's keep our eyes on him and expectant as to what he can do in our lives. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, I want to pray for each of us today. Lord, it's an uncomfortable truth of our existence as human beings that we will face suffering just like the early church did here. But Lord, I want to thank you that when you came into the world, you came to bring not just the treatment, but the cure. And that as we look forward to an eternity with you, we look forward to a day when all pain and all suffering is gone. But Lord, I want to ask that for this life, you will keep us faithful. When we find ourselves in the situations like the early church did, Lord, that you will help us to run to you. Run into the arms of love of the Savior who died for us. And so perhaps there are those of us today who need to do just that. Perhaps you've been running, but you've been running the wrong way and you need to turn around and run back to Jesus. There's that parable of the the prodigal son, that one that tells us that whenever we do that, the Father is waiting with open arms for us. Lord, we thank you for your presence. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.